Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Omer Sadik to the show. Omer spent nearly 12 years at Amazon as a software development leader across a diverse set of businesses, including Amazon's data warehouse, reverse logistics, Prime Now program, Amazon Fresh, and Whole Foods Market. Omer left Amazon in early 2018 to co-found Vive, a contactless shopping checkout solution. And in early 2021, Omer took on the role of CTO at Fabric.inc a high-growth startup providing headless commerce solutions for retail businesses. Omer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tyler. Nice to be here. I'm really excited to hear from your background, and then we'll also get into a little bit of what you're doing at Fabric. But to start off, can you tell us more about yourself and your career at Amazon? Absolutely. I started at Amazon back in late 06, and when I joined we were having a lot of the issues that I see organizations having today in terms of data management and data transfer and loading. So I was part of their enterprise data warehouse team and worked on solutions. We had a very custom Oracle cluster, probably the biggest at the time, that we would have trouble transposing data in and out of at the time. And a lot of our jobs initially were doing that. Spent um, a good bit of time you know, designing systems in retail in general uh, in Amazon's car checkout fulfillment mains, led their reverse logistics teams at Amazon and grew that business from about 300 million to when I left about 4 billion plus in terms of revenue. And then very early started Prime Now, which was Amazon's two hour fulfillment service for grocery and CPG items. That led me to think through the whole grocery domain in general looking at Amazon's Go stores fairly closely as well to see how they work out and had an idea to start similar concept that could be affordable as well as more scalable for the bigger retailers. Uh, it was an autonomous shopping cart that was based out of deep learning computer vision algorithms to automatically detect things going in and out of your cart, calculate a total and let you leave the grocery store like an Uber. That was pretty interesting. It's getting launched in a couple of different stores across the US now. So people will see it soon. Earlier this year, Fessel's been close to me and pressing me to join Fabric for a while and felt like it was the right time. I had developed the technology at Vive already, so was ready for the next challenge. And we have gone through a couple of raises and are growing at about 800% on a quarterly basis. So it's quite a ride. It sounds like it's been a really exciting last few years for you, moving on from these really interesting Amazon businesses to then co-founding a very interesting shopping checkout solution that is now getting launched to now going to Fabric that has recently raised multiple rounds this year. So a very interesting career. I want to rewind back to a few of the earlier experiences you had. Reverse logistics coming in at $300 million and scaling to $4 billion. It's easy for the magnitude of those numbers to be lost at first pass, but that's a tremendous business by many standards. And you were leading these software teams in, in many of these businesses. So I imagine that you were working in these very data-rich environments, but also having this aggressive growth trajectory in the businesses that you were in. 
So to jump into some of the different topics we'll cover and, and get into, I'd love to hear what mental models or go-to practices helped you in some of those nascent Amazon businesses to really make sense of the data inputs and figure things out. There's quite a few. To Amazon's credit, this is something that Amazon does really well in my mind in terms of really honing down on first principles to look at mechanisms around building or scaling a product as well as running a business. It went down to key metrics every time. I've grown organizations from four to 30 to 300 to 500 plus at different levels. A lot of different mechanisms or data strategies are applied. When you're small, it's fairly simple. You go metric by metric to figure out what is attributed to your objective function for the organization. You have fitness functions defined. When you're growing and you're owning more and more systems across, how are you building mechanisms so that hierarchically you are actually still measuring a lot of these things in detail, but concentrating on the right summary or the right content to measure your indicators. And the level of abstraction keeps rising higher and higher. So not really one trick. A lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is behavioral in the sense that are you diving deep enough? Are you thinking big continuously? Are you thinking about evolving the business as an objective function in your everyday work life? And I feel like Amazon has a lot of mechanisms here that have helped me grow these within Amazon and take them outside and put a flavor on them myself. You talked about scaling these organizations from just a few people to dozens or even hundreds. What are the signals to tell you that the mechanisms or the processes you had in place yesterday are no longer good enough today? I have this philosophy of always having counter metrics to your objective function. So every time you're building a mechanism, you're driving towards a function of growth or cost reduction or efficiency or speed. And generally when you see it going bad is that you've outgrown the objective function itself. So you were focusing on cost, but now the business has grown so much that not only cost, but speed or other things matter as well. And you need to evaluate and revise this mechanism. What we tend to do in our organizations is periodic mechanism reviews to just see whether we are still going towards the fitness function. Is that the right function still for the organization or a team? And I think the overall thought that mechanism is a static thing, which is just put in place once and it'll keep running forever is wrong. The way to think about this is every day you're challenging it, you're evolving it, and you're shaping it to make sense for your tomorrow. I really like that. When you're scaling, maybe it's just about getting as much selection or growth. And at some point along that maturation curve, profitability often becomes more important. The finer elements of efficiency tend to become more important. And those might require new mechanisms. Absolutely. And once you're setting these up, you have to understand which of these you'll choose or prioritize over others. And that will change over time. Yeah. So we're talking a bit about mechanisms here, which I think it's worth just saying that Amazon culture really leans into this idea of mechanisms as a tool set. And I often heard a quote from Jeff Bezos where he said, good intentions never work. You need to have good mechanisms to make anything happen. Obviously, a mechanism is more than just saying, hey, here's a new policy or meeting. It's more full circle than that. In your opinion, what makes a good mechanism? 
in my view, there's a few things that I look at whenever we are instituting a mechanism for our teams or even bringing out a previous mechanism and applying it to a new situation. We look at the fitness function as a first step. There has to be some clarity and definition of goals as well that that mechanism is oriented towards. And then it has to have relatability to the function of the team, whatever they're working on. You cannot have too many different layers of abstraction of correlation in between the actual work and the mechanism that's driving or enforcing a measurement. So it's a combination of all of these things that I look at. There's obviously a lot of other things that you can do to ensure not creating a lot of meeting for meeting sakes or measurement for measurement sakes. You highlighted some really important components there for mechanisms. The way I think of a mechanism is it's a process that converts inputs to a desired output. You mentioned goals and and being really clear on making sure those are the right goals. So that's how I think of the output. And then you also brought up another important point, which is what is the noise between that input and that goal? And, And making sure that there's not too much noise that would prevent that input from efficiently being converted to an output with that mechanism. Can you give us an example of a mechanism from one of your past Amazon teams that you found to be a really good example? I have taken a lot of Amazon mechanisms with me, so there's quite a few. One of the ones that resonates really well with me is the correction of errors mechanism. It's something close to my heart. I've lived it very closely at Amazon as a senior engineer working on tier one systems or a call leader. What this mechanism does is in a very fast changing, fast paced world, force you to think back and give you a construct on how to reflect and improve on your processes, whether it's a Kaizen style focus group or just giving you the time and the opportunity to think through first principles of what went wrong and drive fundamental root cause fixes. These have proven to be really, really critical in improving the systems I built at Amazon. And I applied this to my startups as well when they were like four, eight or 15 people. And just as a structure, it helps you to think through how are you going to problem solve and correct your mistakes and learn from them. So this is one of the ones that I really admire. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you've adapted a COE process or mechanism to your startup or current work. I almost smile a little bit when I hear you say that the correction of errors is one of the mechanisms you like the most because I feel like I have a love-hate relationship personally with them. And when somebody asked for a COE, it was it's kind of like there's a knot in my stomach. I'm like, okay, I need to carve out a lot of time over the next week or so to go write this doc and be very vocally self-critical about what happened. But I agree with you. It could be very helpful. When I experienced correction of errors at Amazon, it was a time-intensive process to write it and to do that thinking and asking the five whys to really get to the root issues of what happened and who the stakeholders were and what should have happened, et cetera. In a startup environment like Vive or even Fabric, I'm curious how you have implemented or how you've had to adapt this correction of errors mechanism, given that it would be a lot harder to pump the brakes and have a bunch of people put their heads down and go through this exercise. Well, yes, it's hard, but that's exactly what we've done. Like what I've tried to do is I've tried to shave off requirements on having exact audit logs or a summary graphs in terms of minute by minute, what happened to your metrics. Obviously, as a startup, sometimes you don't have those things and that's okay. The important thing is, do you understand the issue in detail, right? Did you go through the five whys to really understand the root cause? 
are you going to solve some symptom instead? And then ensuring that the actions that you've taken are driven out of that root cause and you take them over to your next sprint or scrum or whatever you use for your planning. That's the real key to a COE. So understanding that, what I did is initially just started with making sure that we are doing a five whys and a root cause analysis and first principles exercise, making sure those action items are going into your planning. As a first step, that was great. Over time, we've introduced other pieces of it as well. What would you do to cut the time to root cause in half? And as you mature as an organization, I think if you're a startup, putting a lot of emphasis on these things, you need to understand that if you're a founder, there's always this how do I cut more of the work and get ahead mentality? That's kind of encouraged. But I think if you're going to build products that are sustainable, these kinds of practices and culture really make a difference. That's a really interesting counterbalance because I hear you saying that it's important to be stubborn about good mechanisms like correction of errors, even in a startup environment, because you can't afford not to do it. But at the same time, You also highlighted that it wasn't just about the correction of the error itself, but there was also an element of how do we better streamline this COE process or exercise the next time around? How do we gather the data and find the root error more quickly? So the process should be improving with each subsequent COE that the team has to go through. Absolutely. I'm actually really proud of this at my current team. People have started doing this by themselves and I've kind of been hands off for a while. And magically enough, all of the senior leaders in the team, the engineers, they themselves now understand the blameless nature of these and the purpose of these drive us to be more efficient. And automatically they're asking all of these questions to add to these things. The next time there's a COE or an event, we ask more questions and more questions and figure out how we get better. That's a great segue into the next question I want to ask, which is, as a leader, it's one thing to use these mechanisms in your own work, but how have you managed organizations through mechanisms? Well, there's quite a few that I use, whether it's planning, there will be operational plans every quarter. We used to do them a half a year at Amazon. But the key thing in there is to have a PNL in place, have a objective in place in terms of what your six months, 18 months, three-year strategy is, how are you going to spend the money, where is it going to get allocated? It gives you a structure to plan all those things and make sure that you have a viable idea. There are cultural mechanisms, in this case, the, the leadership principles at Amazon. I, th- I think that they serve as, as a very timeless sort of mechanisms by themselves, which they align you into the same language, into the same motivations, which is arguably more important than any of the execution mechanisms. PRFAQs are things that I use in product, which are really great ways to not just demonstrate how you think about releasing a product or launching a feature, but also lets you and others ask a lot of difficult questions and strengthen your idea and your viability. Just to double click on that there with the pure FAQ or press release and FAQ, that's one that we've talked a little bit in prior episodes about in light of working backwards and innovate ideas and solutions for customers. But I really like where it sounds like you're going in talking about pure FAQ as a mechanism to help internal team thinking. Can you talk a little bit more about that mechanism and what you found to be particularly helpful in managing teams through it? So... I found in my experience that this is one of the more misunderstood 
mechanisms that internal to Amazon it was served a very different purpose and people outside didn't really grasp that. And it turned into more of, I'm going to write a Wall Street Journal article about my fancy idea. Whereas the whole intention of the PR FAQ was show me what success looks like. So when you're launching, what are the features that you're going to highlight and why? The why is going to come in the FAQ section. And then if a customer is looking at it, what are they saying about it that excites you and delights you and delightful things are they saying about your product at that point? That PR is more like a dressing for this mechanism and this doc. The real meat of it is in the next section, it is free form questions that anybody from a SDE one all the way to Bezos can ask in terms of why do you think this is the right business? How is it going to work? You have a common medium to ask and answer all of these questions with the intention to think through all of the gotchas and make the product better. If you take this understanding outside, a lot of things I see is just very light one or two questions and that those questions are just highlighting the product and doing a lot of PR by themselves and putting a nice published article on top. That's not the purpose of this mechanism, at least the way I understood it. I like that you emphasize the importance of the FAQ. The press release is a little bit of the dressing, but the FAQ is really the meat of how it's going to be done. I know that oftentimes within Amazon, coming up with those FAQ questions was a matter of talking to different stakeholders and hearing what concerns or questions they had about this future state idea. In a startup environment such as Vive, where you had limited stakeholders in the early days, how would you come up with those FAQs and, and go through that process? I think we kind of overdid it with Vive. So both me and my co-founder at the time, we were both ex-Amazonians. So when we were starting this off, we wrote the PR, like how would this product get announced? And then... The FAQ was this 12-page long Word doc where we had criticized ourselves in terms of, will this really work? <laughs> What's going to happen? Who is the competitor? Is the technology even feasible? Why would Amazon not do this themselves? So it helped us think through a lot of these things, which when we went to VC pitches, a lot of it was just restructuring and reformatting this content because we had already had the answers. And when we were going for raises this way, a lot of times, I think the feedback that we got was you guys have thought through the entire thing. Like they couldn't come up with a question where we wouldn't have an answer. That's great validation for the mechanism. Absolutely. So how would you come up with those questions if it was primarily you and your business partner? It took a lot of reflection. What those questions are meant to do is really drive you towards, are you thinking about the first principles of this product or feature or not? Is this business going to work? Write out your thinking on why you think it's going to work. How have you thought through the edge cases? How have you thought through the failure cases? What have you assumed is going to make you successful? Getting that clarity over and over, and it's an iterative process. So every time a PR FAQ used to happen back at Amazon, the document would get published, and then everybody would go have a go at it and add their own sections and add their own questions. And that's sort of what we did in a more informal way, I guess. And it took us a while to ensure we had all the answers. There was a lot of research, a lot of diving deep, really thinking through. It was a weeks long exercise and we would not be sure whether it was the right thing to build or not. So far, it's proven out to be the right decision made. <laughs> We've talked about a few different types of mechanisms, the correction of errors, the PRFAQ, and 
These are the tools that convert the inputs to the outputs. There's an element of adoption, having the incentives, the mechanism is adopted. But a final piece was this idea of inspection and continuous improvement of the mechanism itself. Can you share an example how you've helped your team inspect or improve an already existing mechanism? There's a good one that we've had to inspect and improve something called the change management. And this is more related to how you get stability in your deployment process as you're going through engineering. Startups obviously don't have all the answers and every change needs to go right now. And it's a matter of minutes and hours rather than days that you can wait to roll out fixes or enhancements. So we struggled quite a bit at Fabric to figure out what the right change management questionnaire should be that everybody should answer before releasing something to production. And the reason for that was a change was going through three, four different stages of environments before reaching the customer. It was changing too many hands in between. So everybody would need to be involved in every single change. And those are the things that made us rethink organizationally whether we were structured the right way. Over time, what we realized was that problems came in. We were realizing that there were communication gaps between your build team and your release team or your customer engagement team where the handoff of information was not accurate. So we started adding questions into capture those key handoffs between customer delivery and your engineering team or customer delivery and your product teams. Getting information around what if everything goes wrong, how do you roll back and can you roll back or not? Have you created a press release for this? in terms of what goes out to the customer for communication. Have you engaged the right stakeholders externally? This is something within an Amazon team you wouldn't have to do. But if you're running a SaaS product, you need to make sure that your customers are aware of what's coming down. So we added a lot of those things and this process is still maturing on our end. And that change management attempt, so far it has reduced the error rate by more than 50% from when we started. And it's over time reduced our number of days it takes for a change to propagate from multiple days to hours now. That's a great example. The inertia is to go through the existing mechanism and move on. And so it takes discipline to make sure that that inspection, that improvement is happening. We've talked about some of these more common mechanisms from Amazon, change management, correction of errors, PRFAQ. Certainly others that we haven't had time to get into, like the bar raiser process or weekly business reviews or operational planning or and on cords. It sounds like many of these you've found to be applicable in the startup environments that you've since moved into after Amazon. But I'm curious to hear, are there certain conditions where you believe some of Amazon's mechanisms would be a poor fit in a startup environment? Uh, there's a very easy one, I think. I don't know if many companies have, but Amazon's never been good at employee evaluation. And that's something that I've seen Amazon struggle with throughout my years. And thankfully, in startups, you don't have to have a lot of these large-scale mechanisms to like requirements for promotions, being like four VPs or you know, five managers, and this has to be exceptional two years in a row. I think these things started as good intentions, but didn't really work out. Now, I have the liberty to be a little more direct and be able to shape growth and performance more individually, at least at this scale. But I do see it as one of the ones that I'll have to tackle at some point as the organization matures and grows up. 
I think that there's always another challenge as you scale. Not everything that Amazon does is best in class. And some of it is best in class for Amazon and not best in class for other businesses. And so I find it helpful to think through not just what is applicable from Amazon, but where might that not be sufficient in other business settings. So it sounds like you've taken a lot of the best of Amazon and these mechanisms and practices that you had there and been able to apply them in really innovative ways at Fabric. What are you most excited about with the future of Fabric? Well, I think that this industry is really ripe for disruption. Having gone through two funding rounds, it takes a lot. So that has been quite a roller coaster ride. And I've enjoyed that a lot. But what excites me is that now we're sitting at a point where Fabric has the opportunity to create systems that are going to mold how commerce is done in general for a large part of the world. And it gives us the opportunity to dictate a lot of this innovation in terms of what multi-channel and multimodal commerce looks like. And I've seen various technologies like AI, machine learning applied to that. And there's obviously a lot of augmented reality, virtual reality, and a lot of other domains coming through. A lot of bleeding edge new technology that's there. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a lot of monoliths that are still unshackling themselves on the legacy platforms. Bridging that gap is going to be really, really exciting. And I think it's going to create a lot more creative ways of how commerce is done over the next 10 years. And I'm really excited to be a part of that. It's been very interesting to see Fabric's fast progression. And you're tackling a lot of these really interesting problems that are just going to become more and more important. Thanks again, Omer, for being with us today and talking about your Amazon experience, this concept of mechanisms and examples of mechanisms that you use at Amazon that you've since applied in your startup and fabric leadership roles, and a little bit about what makes a good mechanism and how to think through evolving or improving on those mechanisms. As we wrap up here, where can listeners go to follow you? Fabric has a pretty active blog, so you can go there. I do go on Twitter sometimes. I'm not really that much on social media, but whatever I like or share, I tend to do to Twitter. So my handle is U-M-E-R-S-A-D-I-Q if you want to follow me. We'll drop that in the show notes here so those that are interested can look it up. Thanks again, Omer. It's been fun and enjoyed having you on the show today. Thank you, Tyler.